the one thing we can be fairly sure of is that automate on its own is not going to kill them. So at best, it might render them unconscious. But even that is uncertain since we have no experience of these doses and we don't know how long the procedure is going to last. I'm Joanne Silberner, a features editor at BMJ, and today I'm talking to Robert Sneed about an essay he wrote. It's called Capital Punishment, My Sixth Great-Grandfather and Me. It's hard to know where to start with this introduction. Professor Sneed has had a long and productive career. He led the medical and dental schools at the University of Plymouth and is now emeritus. He does research in clinical pharmacology related to anesthesia and preventive care. In 2013, he led the National Sedation Review for the Academy of Medical Royal Colleges. I could go on, but let's get to the topic at hand, and that's judicial killings, then and now. Then being what happened to Professor Sneed's sixth great-grandfather, and now being how the U.S. executes people on death row. There are some broad similarities and some very vast differences. And there is what I think some might call an extreme attempt to misuse medicine. So before we get to what's going on in the U.S., tell us about your sixth great-grandfather. Thank you. So my sixth great-grandfather was a doctor. Uh, And that was new information to me because up until then, I thought I was the first doctor in the family. Dr. Archibald Cameron was a Jacobite and he was a associate of Bonnie Prince Charlie, and they fought the English at the Battle of Culloden, where things turned out rather badly for them. And as a result, after a catastrophic defeat, the prince and his followers fled to France abroad. There the prince stayed, but Bonnie Prince Charlie uh, wasn't on his own, and my cousin came back to the UK, back to Scotland to collect some debts, was betrayed, and subsequently taken to the uh, prison in Edinburgh, down to the Tower of London. He was tried and convicted of high treason for which the penalty was a mandatory death sentence. And as a result of that, he was executed. And how was he executed? It was pretty gruesome, but fairly standard for the time. So public entertainment was the order of the day. He was taken to Tyburn, which was the London place of execution, where it was performed as a public spectacle. And people would stop in with their families, take the children and go for a good day out to enjoy uh, a bunch of people having their lives ended on a particular day. Cameron, being from a high status family, was transported individually on a sledge, dragged behind horses uh, and sat with him, was an attendant clutching a surgeon's scimitar or surgical knife to remind him what was going to happen during the proceedings. He was hanged for 20 minutes, at the end of which he was probably not dead but asphyxiated. He was cut down and then he was beheaded and then his heart was cut out and burned. So his end was gruesome, it was public and it was arguably not necessary. He was a decent man, he was a doctor, he was well thought of and He just happened to be on the wrong team at the Battle of Culloden, which was a big mistake. Okay. Uh, You know, I I can't stop looking at the lithographs. They're just amazing. Now, let's skip many centuries forward to today. How did you, as a British anesthesiologist, get involved with U.S. death penalty issues? 
I've a career-long interest in clinical pharmacology, particularly in the domain of anaesthesia and its overlap into intensive care medicine. And I've written and published a lot about intravenous anaesthetics, including Etomidate, which is a seldom used agent, but nevertheless, it's on the formula and it's available. As a result of that, the British charity Reprieve, who campaign against lethal judgments and execution around the world, approached me to work with them on providing testimony to support an appeal in the United States. And so that was the approach. And as is often the case in these things, there was a great deal of urgency with a sentence and a time and a date for its prosecution and the uh, appeal needing to be written, turned into legalese and lodged in a very short period. And what was the, and the chemical in question at that point was etomidate? So the anaesthetic drug was etomidate. And what was unusual was that until this point, etomidate had never been used for execution or for attempted execution. And that was the angle on which I was asked to give expert opinion. But how could you? There was no research. Well, there absolutely isn't. And remember, in the United States, they developed their policy on a state-by-state -state basis. So the state of Florida protocol called for a particular uh, and fairly sizable dose of etomidate to be given, and then followed by uh, a, a drug to paralyze the muscles and another one to stop the heart. Now, one of the ironies in this situation is that etomidate, when it is used by clinicians, is selected because of its safety and the fact that it doesn't depress the blood pressure, it has little effect on respiration. And this is quite different from the old execution anaesthetic, thiopentone or thiopental outside the UK, which both stops breathing and has a profound depressant effect on the circulation. So the Florida state was proposing to execute this man using a drug which clinically would be the one with the best chance of keeping his systems going. It seems a little perverse. And these are drugs that you've used therapeutically. Absolutely. So uh, in my tr time as a trainee and to a limited degree as a consultant, I used to use Atomidate occasionally. It's not a good drug. To start with, when you inject it, a significant proportion of patients twitch. And these are not little twitches. They can be what we call myoclonic, which is significant movements, usually of the upper limb, but sometimes of other parts of the body as well. And this uh, is not only unsightly, but also can disrupt venous access if the jerk is significant and pulls on the line. At the other end, uh, it was rejected because it depresses the adrenal gland, which is important, and it makes people feel sick. So it's a pretty rotten drug, and most of us have given up using it. There's a certain irony here. Now, presumably none of these have been tested for their ability to kill humans, at least. Absolutely. So uh, even in uh, laboratory drug development, we no longer test the ability of drugs to kill. In the past, there used to be a thing called the LD50, the dose that killed half the rats you gave an experimental drug to. That isn't done anymore. So uh, drugs are not tested for lethality because obviously that's not a desired endpoint of any pharmaceutical that we're developing to make lives better for humans. So it sounds like there are lots of problems with just trying these out at, I guess they have to guess at the doses? Yes, that's completely true. And there was some 
so-called expert evidence uh, in favour, although the quality of the evidence and the quality of the experts was fairly questionable. I argued on the basis of a thorough but preliminary literature review on the basis of published data on clinical experience and on common sense that this was a particularly poor choice. It's also the case that in the United States, which is where this happens, professional associations, the American Medical Association, the American mm -hmm. Society of Anesthesiologists, have made it very clear that they don't want doctors to do this stuff. And as a result, the execution process is staffed by paramedics, ambulance crew, various other types of individual with some health profession relationship and typically some training in venous access, or whatever, but they're not anaesthetists or in the States anesthesiologists. They're not people who can competently put a line in swiftly and skillfully at the first attempt. They're not people who practice anaesthesia on a day-to-day -day basis. And they're not people who really have any idea about how the drugs work, what kind of ex effects are expressed as they start to work, and what signs would reliably advise you that the patient was asleep or conscious or in a transition from one state to the other. How are these drugs that are used therapeutically to relax people, calm people, put them to sleep during surgery, when they're used at these higher doses that are just estimated at, how do they actually kill? That varies from drug to drug. So in the case of uh, barbiturates, the old anaesthetic agent thiopental would on its own be lethal in a sufficient dose. We know that because it was used in that way. We know that because barbiturates depress the circulation and barbiturates depress breathing. So if you take a patient, or in this case, a convict, and you inject a sufficiently large dose of barbiturate, they stop breathing, they run out of oxygen, the heart is depressed, the circulation and the respiration grind to halt, and that is followed by death. That is a certain thing. In the case of attempting execution using Atomidate, the one thing we can be fairly sure of is that Atomidate on its own is not going to kill them. So at best, it might render them unconscious, but even that is uncertain since we have no experience of these doses and we don't know how long the procedure is going to last. So the killing phase with Atomidate would not happen from the anaesthetic agent and instead it would be an effect of the paralyzing drug, which would eventually kill you simply by stopping your breathing, or by the potassium chloride, which has an adverse effect on the electrical activity of the heart and brings it to a halt. So there's a complete change of pharmacological approach to the killing process. And this is another part of the complex set of arguments that the proposed novel execution system operated by individuals without medical training and without much in the way of planning or prior thought is likely unsafe, likely inhumane, and certainly unethical. In your essay that's in BMJ and on the website as well, you mentioned some other problems as well, and one of those is availability. Can you talk a little bit about that? Certainly. So historically, the American prison system, when wishing to kill its fellow citizens, has bought its drugs 
through the normal drug supply mechanism. Large pharmaceutical companies don't ordinarily sell directly to hospitals and certainly not to small clinics. They usually deal through wholesalers, distributors, and other intermediaries. With the combination of consumer pressure, investor pressure, and hopefully spontaneous reflection on the part of the company's board members as well, 100% of pharmaceutical companies whose drugs might conceivably be used for the American execution process have all taken steps to explicitly prohibit the use of their products in the process. So because of that, the prisons now cannot order the drugs that they wish to use. So instead, they have to find a workaround. And these have become increasingly desperate uh, with a number of unintended and possibly adverse consequences. So, for example, uh, we've had the situation where a small bespoke pharmacy in North London in England became a waypoint for drugs which were being discreetly rerouted to the American execution system. We have the situation in the United States where companies have gone to law to require the return of drug which has been diverted from the supply line into the prison system. And the companies have said, hang on, we want that stuff back. We never supplied it on the basis that it was going to be used for that. It's not okay. Give it back. And this pressure has significantly impeded the ability of the would-be executioners to get the drugs that they think they need. As a consequence, the prison system has resorted to secrecy. And in a number of states, special legislation has been passed to defeat the usual freedom of information. Special legislation has been passed to defeat the usual freedom of information legislation. Just as in the United Kingdom, the average American system, just as in the United Kingdom, the average American citizen enjoys the right to inquire into matters conducted by the public bodies which purport to operate on their behalf. Freedom of information is a powerful tool and it's being stifled by bespoke legislative and deceptive procedures to hide away what drugs are being used, where they've been bought from, how they're handled, how they're stored, what their expiry dates are, what their batch numbers are, everything lined up to obstruct the process of judicial oversight and review of the execution process. You know, I'm particularly interested in fentanyl, its use in the death penalty, because, of course, there's a, an epidemic now of fentanyl use, and people are dying left and right from black market fentanyl. Talk to me about fentanyl being used in, in death penalty cases. Well, fentanyl's only just entered the executioner's pharmacology. It hasn't previously been part of the system. The previous threesome for any execution would be a general anesthetic agent to hopefully put the subject to sleep, a paralyzing agent to stop them breathing, and then a a potassium preparation of one kind or another to stop the heart. None of those are narcotics. Fentanyl is a opioid, which means an opium or a morphine-like drug, which 
depresses respiration. And it certainly causes wooziness, but it's not by any manner of imagination an anaesthetic. And even very large doses of fentanyl may be associated with a degree of consciousness. Now, on top of that, its availability is in short supply through the legal channels. So we have the bizarre situation that if you look at the current Food and Drug Administration shortages list in the United States, you'll see that fentanyl is on it. And yet there's plenty available on the street. So the procurement by the judicial system through back channels is likely worsening the security situation around fentanyl products and possibly compromising a national effort to control opioids and restrain the spiraling opioid epidemic. Let's go now back to your ancestor. How did learning about what happened to him affect your thoughts on judicial killing? I've always been... That's a good question. I've always been opposed to the death penalty, but it's been in a rather abstract way. My thinking was that there's no evidence that the death penalty is deterrent. It hasn't stopped people killing each other in the United States. There's no evidence that it's cost-effective. By the time you've appealed your way up to the Supreme Court, it really isn't any cheaper than keeping somebody locked up in jail. So you're left with vengeance as the only possible explanation for why somebody would want to do it. Learning that one of my ancestors had been executed by the state in a rather horrific manner did bring it all from the abstract a little more into the specific. And I wouldn't say it changed my thinking, but it certainly was quite profound to reflect on what had happened to this man, who by all accounts was quite a good doctor and well regarded. And I think it helped me in my own decision making process to get more involved and to be a little bit more specific about what doctors and those with an interest in clinical pharmacology should be doing to support those opposed to executions in the US. Hmm. And as you've learned more and, and studied more about the methods over time, has your point of view changed? It's arguable that the situation in the United States at present is morally bankrupt. The systematic obfuscation by the states themselves, the deceptive practices of the individual prison systems and their procurement, and the involvement of staff who are likely trained and often very short on competencies, leads to a procedure that is not slick, it is not streamlined, and it is not humane. In the past, the public spectacle, including the grim end of my ancestor, was at least honest. We knew what was going to happen. It wasn't fair, it wasn't right, but it was at least reasonably quick. And it was genuinely the will of the people. It's far from clear that actually the average citizen in the United States knows or understands what's being done in their name. And I'm sure that a vast many of them don't want it done at all. And it's time for change. We've been talking to Robert Sneed about his essay, Capital Punishment, My Sixth Great Grandfather and Me, which is available now on bmj.com. That's it for this podcast. We'll be back soon with more. You can subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get podcasts. I'm Joanne Silberner. Thank you for joining us.